Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome to the Tavern. Did you know this is the place where more than half of the greatest adventures in history have begun? But before those adventurers took their first steps, they watched and calculated who would join their party. Why look over there? There's a mighty barbarian from the Frozen Lands. Strong, mighty, full of honor and wisdom. I happen to know that one. They go by Matt Rossi. And look over there to the right. That woman working away on her mechanical dog. She's cunning, witty, and I've seen her bounce more than her fair share of ne'er-do-wells out of here before I can even blink. I happen to know that she goes by the name Liz Harper. And me? Oh, my name's Joe Perez. And I'll be your tavern keeper. Welcome to Tavern Watch. Hello and welcome to Tavern Watch, where we get together and talk about Games that aren't exactly of the video game persuasion, uh, mostly tabletop RPGs and anything else that falls into that category. I am one of your hosts. Oftentimes I can be found at a shop as a level two shopkeeper, Joe Perez. And with me are my wonderful co-hosts. Uh, first, she is 100% not actually an artificer, but I can only think of her in this <laughs> manner. Liz Harper, how are you doing today, Liz? Uh, doing good, doing good. And uh, expert of all things that are dinosaurs, and I mean, if you ask him about it, I'm pretty sure he can make a dinosaur tabletop role-playing game. In fact, who knows? He might someday. Matt Rossi, how are you doing today, Matt? Uh, actually, while cleaning up my office because of the big move, I found the notes for my third edition Lord of the Scale <laughs> uh, campaign, <laughs> where you played intelligent various various reptile races from D&D translated into various dinosaur relatives they might have been, and... Uh, the basic premise was that the Permian end times extinction that brought about the rise of the various dinosaurs in the Triassic was actually caused by evil undead octopi creatures that were related to the orthocones. And they used trilobite slaves to try and destroy the world again uh, by using the trilobites to go to various places in the earth and perform rituals that would draw like some kind of cosmic impact to destroy the world and it worked that's how the campaign ended like after about 12 sessions the bad guys did it and boom do, uh, do i know Cretaceous. my do i know my co-hosts or do i know my co-hosts i mean it's <laughs> i've talked about it before it's not like it's you know a surprise but i found the notes so i'm like ooh, it's got the maps and everything <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about first uh, some gaming news, uh, a little bit of stuff that's going around right now, uh, and then we're going to get into some broader topics. Uh, first, let's start with the news. Journey through the Radiant Citadel is going to actually be delayed. Uh, we have not heard why uh, other than production issues. Uh, which is actually a good thing. Now, the reason we bring the, or at least I think this is noteworthy in news, is the last several releases that have come out have been very highly anticipated books from Wizards of the Coast. Uh, um, Morden Kanan's Monsters of the Multiverse, uh, Witchlight, 
and uh, Van Richten's Guide come to mind, there was a ton of production issues in a lot of those books. Several folks actually got copies that were printed incorrectly, had doubles of certain pages, missing other pages. Uh, there was a lot because they were rushing to meet demand. And now instead, it seems like they're actually listening to people. And instead of trying to rush it out, they might actually be taking their time to make sure that the product is whole and hail uh, before it goes out. They did say, however, that this is not going to affect the Spelljammer release, which is also on the very near horizon. What do you guys think about this? Um, well, one of the things I think is interesting is that when they bump back the print date, they've also bumped back the digital release date, which uh, last year or the year before, they bumped back a print date and left the digital release date, which caused some drama from people like, oh, you want us to buy it digitally, and then we also have to buy it in paperback when it comes out. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and so now they've started bumping them to to both be at the same time. And it's like, I understand the logic, but I also still wish I could get the digital copy because this sounds like a really exciting book. I also think that sounds like it's a, it's a damned if you do damned if you don't scenario, right? Like you give give the digital, like they tried to do to try to, to make people happy and then you get the pushback or you don't, and then you get the pushback. It's so, yeah, I totally get both sides on this one. Uh, What about you, Matt? It's a no win situation. No win. Do you have any opinions on that, Matt? Um, I think it's interesting that Spelljammer is not going to be affected. It makes me, at first I thought this was probably because of the supply chain problems that have been plaguing everybody. I mean, everybody who publishes has been having problems getting books printed and released. That's just been what's happening. So I thought it was just that, but then they delayed the, uh, the digital copy as Liz pointed out. And we know that they just said Spelljammer is going to be coming out the same, like still as scheduled. And that's interesting. Like, I have so a theory. What's the delay for? You talked about the uh, various problems previous books have had, uh, you know, like poorly uh, arranged or pages reoccurring or just not where they're supposed to be. The last few books I've seen from from uh, Wizards have not had that problem. I mean, I didn't see anything in Theros. I didn't see anything in uh, Tasha's guide. My Van Richten's um, collector's edition is printed upside down and backwards just for. Okay. Like, oh, God. But isn't that a Beatles and Grimm thing? No, it's okay. that's a Wizards of the Coast. Like that is a that is a in-house product. Okay, I, I didn't get the Van Richten's collector's edition. So, yeah. but the ones that I have, I have not seen any problems in, in I, a while. So I don't I don't know. If they're if they were just trying to make sure they don't have problems like the one you're talking about, I don't know if it's a supply chain issue. I have no idea. There's a, um, but there's I, a... I am interested in thinking about what it means that we're still getting Spelljammer as scheduled. So I think, like, and I'm going to run this by you guys real quick. I think it might also just be the nature of the project, though, too, contributing to it. Because Journey Through the Radiant Citadel is a multi-author, multi-source production. So like it's a collection of adventures by other writers, uh, I believe predominantly like POC writers, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, entirely POC writers. Yeah. Yes. So entirely POC writers, but I think there's an element of that as well because not only do you have to go and get them, and Liz knows all about chasing stuff down from from various authors. <laughs> uh, yes. You have to get them, proof them, approve them, get them into print, produ- get them into production for the book, get it cut with the graphics, the graphic designers, so that it actually fits into the book, 
and then get it printed. So I'm wondering if there's an element of that too. Spelljammer is an entirely internal product. Like all of the books that are coming out in Spelljammer are all internal writers. One thing, um, another thing that they announced delayed at the same time was campaign case terrain. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is, Joe? Uh, So the campaign case terrain is literally... Okay, Wizards has been going out of their way to actually do things like be able to give you a battleground in a box. And this is actually a product that is very, very popular for tabletop playing, which is dry erase dungeon tiles in a grid. And so these are snap together tiles that are done in, I believe they're like four inches by four inches that puzzle piece together that you can dry erase with. They come in a case. That case also comes with markers that you can use for either... Uh, tokens of varying size, uh, medium, large, and gigantic, uh, gigantic, but it also comes with, I, I don't know if it's stickers, but they're like cardboard cutouts to put onto them. So we're talking like, you don't have to have cobalt minis. You literally just have like what look like poker chips with punch outs of cobalt that you can put on top of them that fit perfectly into this. So instead of doing something like I've done where you have to carry dungeon tiles everywhere, this is another option. It's also a little more compact than having to roll up a traditional dry erase map. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's that's what's coming out. I believe that's going to be $65 US at release date when it is actually out, um, which was supposed to come out in July. Um, and now I, it's in August. Yeah. That's almost certainly got to be supply chain issues. That one has to yeah. be. Um, all, all they said about any of these was due to production issues, they're delayed. Yeah. So that could mean a lot of things. Yeah. There, I lean towards the supply chain. And the interesting thing is that's not the only thing that's being delayed from Wizards recently either. And it's not just the Dungeons and Dragons side of the house. Uh, because this is Dungeons and Dragons related, I threw it in here as well. Um, I'm recently gotten back into Magic the Gathering as a, a thing. And what happened that pulled me back in is they put Forgotten Realms, Adventures in Forgotten Realms, as a set. The newest set that's being released next week is Baldur's Gate Commander Legends. And it's all of like the all the dragons that they didn't include, all of the major story characters from Baldur's Gate, the video games, uh, as well as any of the books that have been written and, and thrown out there. And it's one of the most looked for sets as far as like looked forward to. We, I've had more pre-orders for this at the shop than I have previous sets of Magic because, again, us Dungeons & Dragons folks, we're kind of here for it, especially when you have... Minsk as a commander for a deck where you can literally throw <laughs> boo at people and scream, go for the eyes. Uh, but that's also getting a slight delay. They're doing, they're getting pre-release kits out, but most of the stuff, which are like boxes of draft boosters and multi-packs and things like that are getting pushed out over the course of several weeks due to availability. And that is almost certainly supply chain as well. So it's hitting every aspect of what they're doing right now. So Something to be mindful of. Now, it's not all bad news, and I wanted to talk about this because I think you guys might have a little more input on it. Did you see the new Unearth Arcana uh, that came out with all the different options revolving around giants? Yeah, Yes, and Matt wrote 2,000 words on it, which I have not gotten around to editing all the way. But I bet, Matt, you have a couple (laughs) things to say about this one? Well, yeah. um, (laughs) Lay it on us, Matt. First off... One of the things I thought was really interesting was thematically the Rune Knight class from Tasha's. Uh, when it came out in Unearthed Arcana, I started noticing something. A whole lot of barbarians were suddenly taking a three-level a three level dip in a fighter. Um, previously, 
a lot of fighters would take a three level dip into barbarian to get rage, but then they would go back to fighter for all the various things that the fighters bring along. Usually barbarian players would just stay barbarian because they want to get to 20 and get all the stuff that you get at 20. I mean, you never do. Usually level 15 is when most campaigns stop, but suddenly barbarians were, were taking a three level dip in a fighter and they were taking a three level dip in a fighter to get rune knight. And that's entirely because rune knight basically has a free and large instead of having to, to have someone cast and large reduce on you or to constantly be chugging potions. You could just do it. It was part of the class. And that's what I was thinking about when I saw this was that suddenly now you've got the barbarian, like path of the giant. I bet you, you're going to see very few people take a dip into fighter unless they're already playing a barbarian of a different specialization. Because this does everything the Rune Knight does, but significantly better. Significantly better. Um, And it works with Rage. It's tied into your Rage feature, so you don't have to use... When you use your... If if you do the 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 three-level dip as as a fighter, or anybody else, to get Rune Knight, you have to use two actions if you want to Rage. Because you have to rage, and then you have to activate the, the giant growth, or the other way around. Both of them take bonus actions to use. So that's basically two bonus actions you have to burn to get yourself up to full strength. Now you will just have the one bonus action, and it will you'll get because it'll activate your rage, which will activate all the giant stuff. So that was the first thing I thought of. Second thing I thought of was looking at the caster class options. The druid one, the the druid of the primeval circle of uh, primeval, yeah, yeah, circle of primeval, is if I let it, would suck me into another twenty five minute dinosaur discussion <laughs> uh, because you get this primeval. It, it's it's very similar to the way the Drake Warden for the Ranger works uh, because the Drake Warden you have a, a a Drake that you can just summon, and if it dies, you can just summon another one as long as you've got some you know summons left. This does the same thing with your wild shape. Instead of your wild shape changing you, you can summon like a, the primeval creature, which has got like a stat block in the Arnest Arcana, and you can just skin it however you want. You can say it's anything. They, I think they specifically call for like Ankylosaurus and Woolly Rhinos in the, the text, don't they? Yeah, but you can say it's anything. They yeah. straight up say you can just say this is anything you want it to be. So it could be a really big, you know, it could be like a, a medium sized whatever, because they started medium. And then they get large, and then I think that level fourteen you can make them huge, uh, which is also cool. But it, it's just it's very it's it like it's a very good druid subclass in terms of its design. It isn't so powerful that I think every druid is going to pick it, but it's got some good options. It, it's a much better animal companion, uh, and it's got the benefit of you know actually the the whole goes away comes back. It, because it's not a spell, if a certain kind of druid could really run amok here, because you can you can have this thing out. You don't have to concentrate on it. Then you could cast summons and summon a whole bunch of stuff. You could you could work really well with it. And it's a it's a creative use of wild shape that isn't wild shape, which is something they've done with quite a few druid subclasses. Like there's the uh, the one with the astral body type one. Yep. I forget the name, but you know you know the one I'm talking about. And there's the spore druid, who is very much a different kind of use of wild shape. So, and there's the uh, circle wildfire, which is also yeah. you have a wildfire spirit that you kind of use in the same way, summoning them with a, with a wild shape. Yeah, which I think is a really cool idea. Yeah, I think it, in future editions of D and D, they might 
change the name of Wild Shape to Wild Essence or something and list that it can be used to turn yourself into a creature, but it can also be used for other features depending on your subclass, just yeah. because they've got so many of them now that don't use it. Well, but all of that, that's those two were interesting, and I thought they, they fit the theme pretty well. But the one that surprised me was the Rune Wizard. The Rune Master Wizard? And it shouldn't surprise me, because Rune, it's Rune crafter, absolute, not Rune. Yeah, sorry, yeah, Rune Crafter, uh, Wizard. It shouldn't have surprised me, because, I mean, runes are magical things. Of course, wizards would be interested in them. Well, this is a... You know? This is a redo of uh, something that has an existence since like, I want to say AD and D, right? There was an AD and D Rune Crafter, wasn't there? Something similar, but it's it's really it is just the Rune Knight for wizards. Instead of being, you know, you know, you're not interested in going and punching people. So here's the 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 Rune aspect that we saw under the Rune Knight. It's that. It's just more of that and more options for it. Um, there's there's I'm not looking at the post I wrote right off the top of my head, so. Um, the, the thing I really remember from all of it, the, the really cool idea was that each spell could be modified by a Mm -hmm. rune that you would use as you cast the spell. And there's no, the only limit to this was your, you know, your proficiency bonus, because you could only do it so many times per day based on your proficiency bonus. Um, but you can use arcane recovery, not just for spells. You can use it to get runes back. Mm Mm-hmm. So you could modify even more stuff. And they have the various, the life rune, the war rune, so forth, to modify your spells in certain ways. I just, it's a really nice, flexible, interesting option that lacks some of the power of some of the other stuff. Like like the, uh, I want to say the diviner, the ability to like basically impose a dice roll on someone else uh, is chron- very strong. Yeah, the diviner and chronomancer are very strong yeah. when it comes to manipulating dice rolls, both your yours and your allies, as well as your enemies. But the cool thing about the rune stuff is that they, there's there's abilities you can do that kind of thing with. There's abilities where you can just buff somebody else. There's it's, there's a lot of interesting options to this this subclass that I really liked. The feats, um, I I don't I didn't see any feats that really made me go, ooh, I must have this. Not that they're bad or anything, but they they just weren't like. They didn't immediately catch me the way that the the, the subclasses did. And that could just be that I wasn't giving them enough attention. Well, I think some of them are a little, um, I don't want to say they're not lackluster because like uh, well, Ember of the, the Fire. Is, Dra- Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the problem I had with them is that they've recently showed off some really interesting new feats in other UAs. Like the in the Kryn one with the, the, the background feats that like as you take them, as you go along, they, they get stronger. And these just felt like throwbacks. Kind of, yeah. So, so, so there's I, a, that was my problem. That was what I noticed. So there's some uh, there's some aspects of some of these feats that I think is actually kind of interesting and give you some uh, variety because they're doing something that is, for lack of a better term, that I have been complaining about for a while. Uh, <laughs> so I'll use this uh, Ember of the Fire Giant. I'll use as an example uh, here. So it has two different. Uh, it has a prerequisite of being eighth level. Uh, its flavor text is you've manifested the fiery combat emblematic of fire giants, granting you the following benefits. The first is sort of the lackluster portion of it, which is born of flame. You have resistance to fire damage with the way that they've reworked racials recently. That's not that hard to get. You can take a modified tiefling for any template you have and have fire resistance. Here's where it gets interesting, at least to me. And all of these have something like this, uh, searing ignition. When you take 
the attack action on your turn, you can replace one of your attacks with a magical burst of flame. That right there is something that they haven't done with a lot of class designs. Usually, feat features and class features are all or nothing. You have to replace all of your attacks in the action or none of them, which limits a lot of the damage output that fighters can do, which is why certain things like certain barbarian classes outpace fighters pretty drastically on like damage output and and things like that. Something like this, however, lets somebody who has, let's say you have three attacks a turn and two of your attacks are regular and one of your attacks is this. It gives a little more flavor. It's starting to to creep towards more of, I don't want to say a cinematic feel, but I don't know how else to put it, where it's trying to give you more options in combat because at the end of the day, combat's boring. Let's face it. D&D 5th edition combat takes forever. And we're going to be talking about this later, folks. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> it takes forever. It's oftentimes very, very boring. And when you're out of combat, if you're taken out or something happens to you, it, it you don't have any more involvement until you're brought up or the combat's over and the party wipes. So they're trying to give you more engagement in between, or at least it looks like they're trying to actually look at that design space, which is actually something we've been asking for for a while. Now, I'm going to stop talking because I want to get Liz's take on this on these things. Um so have you looked at any of these additions yet, Liz? I, I mean, only on a surface level, really. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of druids. And so what Matt was talking about, about the druid forms and about the use of wild shape, mm-hmm. that really interests me because as druid, uh, as a class stands, you go in and you either pick uh, Circle of the Moon, I believe, which is the one that does makes your wild shape like really, really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Or you're just kind of a generic caster, and also you can turn into an animal, but if you aren't Circle of the Moon, it takes a full action to turn into an animal form. And that really cuts down on what you can do in combat, because you could turn into an animal form, but that takes your full action, and you can't do anything else. Whereas Circle of the Moon turns into an animal as a bonus action, and then goes and claws people's face off, you know? So, like, that's really exciting when you can do stuff like that. But it's always made it feel like Circle of the Moon is like the only druid subclass because it's the only one that really takes good advantage of wild shape. And all of the other druids have wild shape, but you have to think creatively on how to utilize it because it doesn't have, you know, kind of that obvious combat angle. You're going to want to stay out and cast spells and things, or you're going to want to stay out and so you can heal Maybe you would use it out of combat to be something fast or something stealthy, but in combat, it's very hard to use. So I like that they're starting to think more about wild shape and how would druids that aren't turning into animals all the time maybe use this because otherwise it's this feature that has a lot less power and capability. So it's, I mean, these are important things to think about. And I really like what Wizards is doing with all of the new druid subclasses we've seen in Unearthed Arcana, the ones we've seen make it into Tasha's, because you're kind of rethinking the power hierarchy mm-hmm. of druids, and you're trying to u- you're trying to make it so players can easily utilize every tool in their toolbox. And so when they have a combat round, it's not just every round. It's like, okay, I cast this are okay, I turn into a wolf and bite someone's face off. You know, you have compelling options in different directions. And that makes combat more interesting across the board. If you have more options than just, okay, I cast magic missile. Next turn, okay, I cast magic missile. Next turn, (laughs) you know? Yeah, and I think think that's one of the 
especially with like uh, Morgan Kanan's Monsters of the Multiverse is a really good example of how they're trying to like update things to make them more engaging or give players more options. And I actually applaud them for it. And if this Unearthed Arcana is a, a small showing of things to come, I'm here for it. I Because I'm 100% all about more player options. And this is something I know I try to do in my games when I run them is I try to reward people for creative uses of what they already have, but also giving people stuff that already does some of those things for them or gives them more options out of the box. It's just it's always going to be better, at least in my opinion. Uh, Anything else to add to that before we move on? All right. A couple other quick tabletop news items before we get into the big topic for this week. Uh, Oh, I got another tabletop news item, though. Okay, go for it. Uh this weekend is PaizoCon, and this year, first thing to mention is that PaizoCon decided to do a hybrid thing where they're, they've got a full virtual uh, con, and they're doing a live con at the same time. That's basically, a really good idea for yeah, any convention. Basically, kind of similar to how the last couple of BlizzCons went before they shut it down, uh, where they were amping up their virtual aspect. It's sort of like if you had BlizzCon line happening during BlizzCon instead of instead of it. So that's that's one thing. But the, the other interesting thing is they announced a whole bunch of stuff they're releasing for uh, Pathfinder and Starfinder. Uh, one of them is the Treasure Vault rulebook, which is basically just how to do new kinds of magic items. Uh, how it's bringing in magic items that didn't make the cut from Pathfinder, for, you know, one first edition, and it's exp- it's adding the Alchemist's class. It's giving the Alchemist class more stuff they can do. So it's basically just it's basically the loot pinata book. Which, you know, uh, I like those kind of things as a DM because they give me ideas, but I can understand why some people don't like them. But they're also doing the Lost Omens Impossible Lands Guide, which is cool because it's just different setting places. Um, they're, they're also basically going to do collected ver- the collected version of, of Fists of the Ruby Phoenix, which was the Pathfinder Adventure Path from last year, the, the martial arts one. That's a complete collected edition of it. I'm actually um, really looking forward to that. Yeah, they're also going to be doing uh, several other adventure paths as hardcovers, although they don't know exactly when for these. Um, Abominations Vaults is going to get done, and they're thinking about releasing Fists of the Ruby Phoenix for other games. Uh, we know that Abomination Vault is getting a D&D 5e adaption, so Fists of the Ruby Phoenix might get one too, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Apparently there's already a PDF version of it available from their, their stuff. They've already made it available. <laughs> wow. Uh, complete so, with yeah. maps and everything else. Wow. Okay. So they announced this today, so that's pretty impressive that they already have the thing out. Uh, but yeah, so basically stuff that they're, they're putting out a bunch of different stuff. They're, the Dark Archive rulebook is coming. Um, there's going to be a new adventure path called the Gatewalkers. That's a that's a three-parter. Um, so fair amount. Um, the Starfinder Drift Crisis Case Files book is uh, basically three shot, uh, three short mystery adventures in one book. Kind of similar to Radiant Citadel, but just just three adventures that are longer. Uh, so yeah, various stuff that they they're going to be releasing. The adventure path stuff. It feels like Paizo is basically decided uh, we're leaving money on the table here by only <laughs> putting stuff out for Pathfinder. And and we have the thing about Paizo is they have some of the best adventure paths. The, they the do. adventure path they really do. They do some of their adventure stuff. It is it is really good. And it, you can absolutely run a whole campaign of it, and and really should. And I think with the uh, the 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 uh, Pathfinder video games that they've put out so far, 
have kind of proved that because they they basically just take the adventure path and adapt it to a video game, and that's it. That's all they do, and it's because it's all they have to do. They don't have to really tinker with it much. So, I am interested to see if they if they're going to keep doing the adventure paths for for D and D five e, if they're even thinking about adapting them to other games because you might as well. Um, yeah. But we'll see what goes on with that. I am, however, really really curious to to see when if. If when when uh Abominations Vault gets its five E, I don't know if that's out yet, is it? No. Yeah, when that comes out, uh, I'm interested to see how they how it does. If people are interested in picking it up, yeah, that's the one place I think that five E has kind of fallen by the wayside here. They've done a couple of big adventures, and they tend to put adventures in their source books and stuff, but there's no real big support adventures afterwards. Um. They did the Storm Giants thing and the Rise of Tiamat back at the beginning, but I don't, I can't really think of anything since the Baldur's Gate one. Uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, kind of. Rhyme of the Frost Maiden was a big one, yeah. Yeah, and we're gonna get the the Radiant Citadel one, but that's that's a fairly small drab drab of adventures compared to like the old days. So I th- so I'm interested to see if adventure if the adventure paths become popular among players i actually think that that has something to do with it and this is you actually uh before i move into the 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 thing because this is related to that uh liz i know you're not a huge pathfinder person or anything like that yet uh we'll get you don't worry (laughs) um but do you have any thoughts on anything that matt brought up i am afraid not i am interested in seeing these the like pathfinder adventures come to 5e and it's not that i have anything against pathfinder it's just 5e is what i know and understand best so like one of the hardest parts of getting anyone including myself to play new ttrpgs is that it's a different system there's a learning curve and not all of the other not all systems have like really strong toolkits to help people get started like D&D obviously has D&D Beyond, which will handle all of your character creation. You don't have to do any math or think about things. You just pick some options and you can go. And that's it. Um, I know Paizo is working on one for Pathfinder. I don't know if it's out or finished yet. And um, of course, yeah. And of course, there's one that's going to come for the Avatar TTRPG as well. And those tools are so important. You know, it's hard to get into new games without them. Yeah, I was actually... I was just talking with about that today with a couple of people that are uh, at the shop that are really excited to start playing D and D, but showing them D and D beyond and like having their eyes light up, like, wait a minute, if I have the book and this, like it'll help me do everything. It's that's a huge lowering of the barrier. Oh yeah. Massive. Now to the adventure path portion of it, I think there might be a reason why they're doing campaign setting books and not necessarily full on adventures recently uh-huh. is because a lot of companies like Paizo, but not just Paizo companies, also like Privateer Press, have been pushing full on adventure campaigns built into 5e, which is why essentially what, and what they've been talking about is fifth edition is going to be the last edition, essentially, of Dungeons and Dragons. It's going to be fifth eternal. Uh, or whatever they're going to call it. They're going to tweak the rules a little bit, streamline everything to accommodate for the FAQs, do one more release, but then that's this is it. This is the framework we're going to have, which I'm okay with. But like Privateer Press is taking their Iron Kingdoms game, which was based off of their 2D6 slash uh, 3 or 4D6 system, which was complicated for newbies to sort of understand uh, and really get into, and taking that steampunk aesthetic 
and converting literally every portion of it to fifth edition and releasing those. They uh, they just released like a huge source book. They're about you know to do a whole another one. Go for it. The fact that Iron Kingdoms is doing that because the Iron Kingdom started as the Witchfire trilogy yep. of adventures published for third edition. Yes, it did. And the <laughs> first Iron Kingdoms books were all third edition books. That then they went went on to become a tabletop uh, game yeah. that rivaled Warhammer 40k. Yeah. yeah and but, now it's but, coming full circle. <laughs> yeah. It's just fascinating to me. But it's, I think that's what they're relying on is I think they're relying on third party creators to make those large adventure paths. Even with some of the new books that have been coming out, it's really encouraging homebrewing. It's really encouraging creating your own adventures. It's really encouraging you developing your story and world, but using set pieces that they give you as anchor points. And I'm kind of here for that because I think that's good for newer DMs once they get comfortable with like something like a Candlekeep Mysteries or a Witchlight Carnival where everything is sort of laid out for you. But as you start to see how the pieces click into place and start to understand how things work and, and how things ebb and flow, most people I know, their natural inclination is, okay, but I can borrow this from here and then do this and then I can do this and then I can do this. And then it becomes your own thing, not just reading from a book or a module. So I think they're relying on that more and more. And then outsiders that want to, or outside companies, third-party companies that want to bolt onto the fifth edition or D&D 5 Eternal, whatever we want to call it, they can have those big ones for folks that want to run something that isn't necessarily a full homebrew. And then they don't have to put the resources for it. They just continue making set pieces. So who knows? But I think there might be something to it. The other thing is with D&D is... You know, you can have a big published adventure and you can play off that big published adventure, but who knows what characters are going to do? They could take a wild right turn when you expect when you're trying to guide them to the left. <laughs> Get and, out of a carnival. <clears throat> uh, yeah, well, hmm. but, <laughs> you know, you can't predict you can't predict the direction players are going to go. And so big published adventures are kind of you know, it's kind of a linear story and there are different ways to progress through them. But if your players go off on a, on a, if they take that sharp right turn and they get off book, you know, you have to do something either to bring them back into the story or, you know, so adventures are great, but they're also limited because they limit the directions you can take if you want to stay in the adventure. So I mean, I think maybe it's a good idea that they don't publish too many like big grand adventures because I know one of the problems we have had as a group who like to play TTRPGs is there are so many adventures out there and we can't play all of them. Mm -hmm. There's only like, so much time. Through, yeah, we've been playing through Witchlight, but we've been doing that for months and we have not gotten very far. Um, last last game, we did a game last weekend and Anna asked me, so how long do you think we're going to, how long do you think we're going to keep doing in this pink campaign? And I'm like, we're like in chapter one, chapter two of the book. Okay. So, um, I mean, to, to, put, it, to put a it in while. perspective, the, the, the game, the campaign that I've been playing in uh, off, uh, like podcast since 20 or since 2017. Uh, yeah. Since 2017, we have 153 sessions under our belts. Like it can go for a while. Like these can take a while, even if it is a published adventure, even if you start with one of those and there's, yeah, the, 
they can go as long or as short as you want. When Matt says most campaigns yeah. fall apart at 15, it's not f- usually from lack of joy in the game. It's usually because, you know, life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's scheduling. That's the hardest thing to do with D&D. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you need to be able to have things you can maybe slot into existing campaigns are a lot of what Wizards of the Coast seems to be doing now is that each of their adventures really introduces a new world, you know? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Van Richten's Guide really kind of uh, built out the domains of dread and kind of consolidated this whole bank of lore over there. Wild Beyond the Witchlight did all of this stuff in the kind of set some ground rules for the Feywild. It's much more of a straightforward adventure, but it kind of built out this sort of Feywild content. And, like, each book kind of feels like it's sort of establishing a territory, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. It's setting up a playground. It may be an adventure, but it's setting up new places you can have adventures. Well, that's why I said that they don't really do classic-style adventures anymore, because Mm -hmm. a lot of their supposed adventures or collections of adventures feel like a campaign setting that's sort of sneaking itself in via some <laughs> some little adventures you can do. Theros comes to mind as one that it had an adventure in it, but it was in its but it's very much a campaign setting. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And yeah. then you have like uh Witchlight and Van Richten's definitely kind of straddle that line. Van Richten's is more a source book than an adventure. Uh Witchlight is more an adventure than a source book, but they both contain yeah. elements. In, uh, Candlekeep is just a straight up bunch of adventures because it's in the yeah. Forgotten Realms. But it also introduces so, Candlekeep as something you can drop in. Yeah, absolutely. And you could put it in and another d- world, no problem. I think and- that's just interesting in terms of the different approaches that we're going to see them taking. Because Spelljammer, in my opinion, Spelljammer is the book that is basically them saying, this is a campaign setting that can be any part of your campaign setting. If that you, makes sense. You were saying you were going to say something, Liz. Uh, I was going to say one of the interesting things about Candlekeep is that these are really easy to slot anywhere. And the book kind of stresses that like, okay, these start at Candlekeep in the Forgotten Realms. But if you do something somewhere else, these started a library or these ended a library. It can be any giant archive of knowledge can be your source point. So I mean, that's that's something that's great about these adventures. There are lots of features you can kind of drag and drop into your own world. There are ideas you can steal. And that was that was always true. You know, that was always true. Oh, I can grab this thing from this adventure and put it into my own homebrew campaign just because I think it's cool. But it feels like they're really stressing that in the newer books. I, I think they really have been for a little bit now, too. Like, even when they started doing the multiple planes, like when they started bringing in things like Strixhaven, uh, and Theros, they're making it a point of, yes, you can do this entirely here, but like Strixhaven is a multiverse touching college. It's a university that spans the multiverse. It has its own plane, but it has ways to get there from literally everywhere. Um, the well, you guys remember when I ran a Theros game for the yeah. site, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I did that, I actually didn't run a Theros game because I'd also had another book the Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, which was again an adventure, but it was also a campaign setting. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, a it wasn't a Wizards of the Coast book, but I took elements of that and I used them too uh, because they're both since they were both kind of Greek mythology inspired. It wasn't hard. They're like basically just okay. This this whole book is set on this island, so I'll just put that island right here in the ocean. <laughs> and I was kind of hoping that campaign would keep going. 
but mm-hmm. I don't think anybody was interested in doing any more of it, unfortunately. But I had more. I had a and lot. And we can more. only do we can only do so many things. That's the problem. Yeah. That's that's where we keep landing. So before we move on to the topic, which is uh, I think going to be very interesting for everybody who listens to our live play podcast. The last thing I just wanted to throw out there for news was that the net latest update for the uh, Avatar tabletop role playing game did come up, which was the Wan Shi Tong. Uh, PDF and book release has been finalized. Uh, so the PDF's gone out to all of the backers, uh, and the book is going to production. The interesting thing that I, I was going through a bunch of the old updates, we knew that there was a delay on this game being released previously due to paper shortages, and we were told that there was going to be a summer 22 release. I have not seen any other updates on release timing for uh, backers getting their stuff. And as a store, which is also interesting because they, they were one of the few companies, Magpie Games, that did a retailer level, which the store I'm at did. We haven't gotten any word either on fulfillment. Um, so I'm very curious if everything is still going according to plan, if it's still on on point. But also there were several other books besides the Wan Shi Tong and the core book that were supposed to be released as well with it. Uh, adventures that were supposed to, to come along that. I don't think we've seen yet. So I'm very curious if it's going to get pushed back again or not. So it's just the supply chain out there is a mess. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised is. if it does get pushed back well, again. It isn't just a supply chain though, mm. because uh, if I understand how avatar is working, yes, it's magpie, but they had to hire quite a few other people. They have to, that they had to reach out to and, freelancers and it has to go through approval from Viacom yep. as well. So I I've, I've worked on two professional products. Um, one of them was the Book of Oblivion for for Wraith, and the Book of Oblivion was was super freelanced. Uh, it was only a couple of people who actually worked at, at uh, Onyx Path were involved. the The head of the project was a freelancer. Let's put it that way. I remember when I did my thing, I hand I wrote it, I handed it in, I got a ba- thing back saying, "Okay, we need you to do these things back to it, uh, these format things." Did that, sent it back again. Then for like months, it was just back and forth on the Slack mm-hmm. channel of people like you know needing extensions needing to okay can someone write some of these because this person can't do it it's it's just the nature of it um i ended up writing like a couple other things that i wasn't expecting to write just because the other people couldn't do it and that kind of stuff adds up when your project goes from this little thing that you're gonna do to people are throwing millions of dollars at you and now you have to do all this stuff um Ramping up to the demands of the Kickstarter, I don't know that anybody could be ready for that. No, no, it was it was ridiculous. We talked about that when we talked with uh, with Brandon Conway. Like it yeah. was unexpected. And and the problem with that kind of thing is it it takes time to ramp up to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the examples that's not from from TTRBGs actually goes back to to video games, but. When the people at, at Blizzard decided they were going to put more people on the World of Warcraft team uh, for, for uh, Warlords of Draenor, it didn't make Warlords of Draenor come out any faster. In fact, it took longer because part of the time you were spending training people. And with freelancers working on a game project, you're constantly coming into a new system that you don't know anything about, and you have to learn it really fast. So... I think that's going to be an issue. I don't know if it will delay it, 
but I definitely think that's got to be part of the problem that they're having is, is, you know, now we have to do all this other stuff that we didn't have to do before because we decided to keep putting stuff on there and they just kept giving us money. So now we have like, you know, in a way it's like, it's your own fault. Cause you're like, Hey, th- this won't happen. Cause there's no way it's going to, we got a million dollars. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll do this thing about this era and nope, already smashed that goal. Okay, what about a, a like? Oh no, you've already, they've already gone past that. Okay, <laughs> like when you get to nine million dollars on an indie game company, uh, it is a lot of milestones to hit. So I I do think that that's got to be part of it. I just I just feel like that's yeah. that's got to be a contributing factor to why stuff is not coming out when we would want it to. Yeah, and I'm, I'm mostly I and I this is expected, right? I'm just mostly surprised that we haven't heard anything about further extending it out. Which, yeah. again, while not ideal, I understand and would be okay with personally. So yeah, but the problem is they're probably still like as you mentioned, they also have to go to the. It's uh, who actually owns this? V- Vi- CBS Viacom Viacom Viacom. Yeah, so they have to go to Viacom and say for everything. Hey, yeah, we want to do this, this, these characters, this story, and Viacom has to sign off on it. Which, and I, I gotta be honest with you, I don't think Viacom has put like a ton of people on the approval process because, come on, you know, it's a tabletop role playing game. They probably have like one poor, overworked licensing person who has to go over all this stuff and approve it. So you're not that is wrong. One issue. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of issues. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we recently had a, uh, well, fun time. As Liz pointed out earlier, we have been playing through the Witchlight campaign uh, as part of a live play for our podcast section here. Liz, would you like to maybe give a brief description about what happened? Because, oh, man. <laughs> um, yes. And for anyone who has not listened yet and I don't think Dan has posted the podcast publicly because he's been swamped this past week. If you have not listened to our latest Wild Beyond the Witchlight game and you don't want spoilers for it, you should turn off right now. And uh, yeah, Uh, because we're going to talk about the game sort of in depth and kind of, uh, you know, how the sausage is made here. Uh, Ready? Ready? Have you left if you aren't going to listen? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. So, yeah, last session, you know, everyone died except for Matt's character. (laughs) Uh, And that's, it's interesting. We had a big combat encounter plan since they landed in this realm of the Feywild. They landed in Hither, this realm controlled by a hag. Uh, Not a very pleasant place. And uh, they have been hearing about the this group of bandits that's been tormenting all of the residents. So last session, they finally ran into the leader of this group of bandits, Agdon Longscarf, and they had this big fight. And of course, you've got Agdon, who's a pretty powerful guy himself, and then he has lots of little bandit minions. And uh, yeah, the party got overwhelmed pretty fast, and I was actually surprised because I expected... You know, everyone's kind of like really overwhelmed challenges in the past, even though folks are pretty low level, only level two right now. Y'all have really figured out interesting ways to tackle things in this game and other games to like overcome challenges that seem like they would be beyond you. And I figured everyone would get this as well. And uh, in fact, I kind of lowered the difficulty of the combat because I was worried everyone was getting beat up too much and it wasn't that much fun. Um, 
because there was a trick. Now, Matt and Joe, do you mind if I go into the trick? No, go do for it. Do you not want to know this? Go for it. I so think like I, fi- thing- I figured it out, I think. So I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, I guess it, like when we, we were trying to do it at the point where it was too late to try and do it. And plus, well, let's be honest, dice rolls were not in our favor. In this. Dice rolls yeah. were not in our I favor. Was, I was rolling really well, and y'all were not rolling really well. So the trick is, you know, Agdon is actually a lot of bluster. He's he's a very blustery. He's powerful, but it's a lot of bluster. And he wears this scarf that is like magically attached to him mm-hmm. through some, you know, through reasons. He is stuck to this scarf. The scarf is stuck to him and cannot be destroyed. And if you grab the scarf and hold on and pin him down, like he In a very short time, he will just give up and be like, no, no, please, please let me go. Let me go. Like a very short time, he will just give up because that's that's who he is. He's all bluster, not a lot of not a lot of strength. He's only interested in fighting when he has the upper hand. And um, if you got him to that point where he was like giving up, his followers would have been like, wow, you were not the guy I thought you were. What's all of this? What's all of this? You're this big, strong bandit leader. And they would all bail on him. And in the very beginning of the fight, Joe's character grabbed the scarf mm-hmm. and had it. And I figured, oh, well, this combat is just going to its gonna be over before it's even started. Because Joe made the smart move, grabbed the scarf, and is hanging on. But then <laughs> Joe I, decided to let the scarf no, go to I attack. Didn't, I didn't have a choice. Because what happened? in order yeah. to attack, I have a two-handed weapon. I have to use both right. hands. Yeah. But you decided, you made the decision to attack instead of to hold on to the scarf. Yep. That was the thing. You could have held on to the scarf. If you had done that, you know, combat would have lasted maybe a round, maybe two rounds, unless he managed to escape, which maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't have. Um. So, yeah, and after you dropped the scarf to make your two-handed attack, no one else did any, no one else grabbed for the scarf for, like, a really long time. Um, Andrew's character tried to shoot the scarf, but the scarf is, like, something that can't be injured or destroyed. So that really didn't do anything. And just no one, after that first bit, no one really went for the scarf until it was, like, like beyond too late, like people had started dropping because there were all of these bandits swarming you and Agdon's very powerful with a multi-attack. And, and, and uh, the blinding attack to the brand is, is very, very good. Yeah. When he, when he hits you with his branding iron, you can't see him. He becomes invisible to you. So that's very tricky. He has some big tricks up his sleeve, which uh, help him win fights. But I was, I did pull a few punches there. And so what I'm interested from the two of you is, you know, was it right to pull punches and give you a better chance when it turned out, oh, this is going to be a real big combat encounter? Or should I have pushed things and made it end faster, especially when people started dropping? Like one of the things was Agadon's attack was 3d6. Mm-hmm. And he could do two of them around. And uh, pretty quickly, I started doing, I'd roll 3d6 and take the lower two. <laughs> and that was it. So it was not immediately overwhelming and it was still pretty overwhelming because I was rolling really well. Also, he was supposed to have two groups of bandits in boats that would come up and join him. And I only I only did one. And I also made all of the bandits check to see if they could climb up 
onto this platform you were on to attack you. And a lot of them stayed out of the fight for a long time because I was rolling very badly on those checks. But so what do y'all think? Is it right to like pull punches and give the party a better chance? Is it right to change the encounter on the fly to maybe make it less overwhelming? Or especially in this case, there is completely a, a path out of here that does not involve everyone dying. No one died. Uh, so, like, the party was fine. Either they won and it was fine, or they lost and they have a different set of challenges in front of them. Uh, so, here's my question. Should I have been pulling punches? Should I have pulled more punches so you had a more even fight? Or should I have gone all in and just maybe ended the encounter more quickly? What do y'all think? Let's I'll, start with let's start with Matt, who was the only one to get away in that I encounter. I was going to say Matt hid. Matt Matt's character escaped because she hid and got away and kept an eye on everyone from a distance. Uh, honestly, I was thinking about bailing a lot earlier. Yeah, uh, so was because I. I was watching the fight and thinking to myself, "Okay, we're not really a. We've got one good combatant, and then my character, who's a bard, and therefore is." okay at everything but isn't like a front line anything like you don't want a bard as your as your brawler uh you don't want a bard as your primary magical damage and you don't want a bard as your healer but they can do all that just not as well um so i was watching it and i and i realized pretty quickly that we were messing up because we all targeted agadon and didn't do anything to the to, to the mooks and the mooks were the one who were taking everybody out because nobody had enough hit points to take any more than like one hit from them. So we kept, we were laser focused on scarf guy and we probably should have spent a little time dealing with those guys. That was our problem. Number one, in my opinion. Well, okay. Let me, let me point out a fact here. You had him down to five hit points. Yeah, but we, we weren't, if you'd, if you'd gotten him down, the fight would have, you know, the yeah. bandits would have been like, but we were, it didn't feel like we were actually hitting him. Yeah. The, the, the feeling wasn't that we were actually doing anything. Yeah. So I took, was thinking about taking he off. Took, yeah. He took half damage from, he could use a reaction to take half damage from any attack once around. Yeah. yeah he and had so, the, I forgot what it was called. I, I've called it out, but yeah, he has the, yeah, that reaction is annoying. Like uncanny dodge or something. That's it. Yeah, he did. That's yeah. it. So I don't think you need, you need to necessarily do anything differently. Uh, I don't think that going, the, the situation has to be responded to as it is unfolding. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you'd rolled differently, like if you'd been rolling terrible and we'd all been rolling well, that fight yeah. would have been over a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it is part of the game that the dice control how things go. Yep. Um, that being said, I have no moral qualms with doing any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I am more than willing to, I'm more than willing to make a fight easier or pull punches so I don't kill players because it is super easy to kill players. And I always feel like it's not necessary. I'm also willing to make a, a, a fight get harder in the middle mm-hmm. of a combat. If the party is just shellacking it, I will like, I will make up a layer action on the <laughs> spot. I will suddenly people drop from trees. I'll do whatever. Uh, it, it all depends or on you were fighting an illusion all along and here's the real guy or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason that I'm, I'm okay with that kind of thing is because it's all about, you know, how is this encounter going? How are they, are they like, do they look like they're having fun or do they sound like they're having fun or do, do you get the sense that they've already checked out? 
Uh, a lot of yeah. times the yeah. problem with, with the party is you get to a certain point and the party checks out. They're yeah. like, okay, this is basically over. Um, one of the or reasons I'm that I unconscious for a- 10 rounds of combat and there's nothing yeah. I can do. I decided yeah. to, I decided to run because I felt like, okay, if I can actually get away from these people, I can follow them and get the party out. And it's not, it's not a victory or anything, but it's like, I, 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 Liz may this may be a good one for Liz. I'm pretty sure you read the old, all the old X Men stuff. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you remember the Hellfire Club story where Wolverine gets knocked into the sewers? Yeah, yeah. I was imagining like Hippolyta <laughs> as, <laughs> as Wolverine, and she's like, "Okay, I lost. They beat me, but now it's round two. Now I got to go get everybody out, and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll and we'll t- we now know how to do this." Um, so. Yeah, that was basically my thinking. It wasn't. I wasn't trying to win or prolong anything. I knew we were done. Uh, when it was just me, I yeah. knew. Yeah, this is over. I can't beat all these people. And he came right after me, and I knew he was gonna. And he hit me with the brand to blind me. And I'm like, I don't care if I can see you. I'm not going to be looking for you. <laughs> like jump off into the mud. But if not for that really good stealth check, that wouldn't have worked. You know, I managed to hide, but only because that's all I did. And you know, I would I did it in the mud. I and I didn't try to take any action to get out of it. I think it's you know it it, it is situ it's situational. It's always based on what the situation is. If we were utterly destroying them in like in no time at all, you'd have been well within your rights to make to to bring the full force of the encounter to bay. If yeah. literally everybody dropped in one round, which they almost did, um, it was a then, few rounds. Then you can. You know, you can say, okay, I'm just going to lighten up on this because this guy does way more damage than I was expecting, and and this will be over too fast. Yeah. That's all fine. It, it all depends on what if are the party having fun. Sometimes it's better to just move that, it along because they're not. Mm-hmm. You know? That that's that's the big thing right there, and that's what my takeaway from anything really is 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 everybody at the table, including the dungeon master, having fun. <laughs> Encounters should be mercurial. Right. You don't you can design something on paper and things could line up perfectly. You could have a party of four level twos in a CR2 encounter that on paper is even, but it can hard skew one way or another because at the end of the day, it's a dice game and you need to be able to make adjustments on the fly. If your everybody is housing the encounter and they're having fun doing it, do you need to make it harder? Are you having fun? Is everybody having fun? No. If everybody but one person's having fun because they're like, this is too easy or you're not having fun, make it a little bit harder. If the the encounter is completely housing the party and everybody at the table starting to get quiet and not having a good time because they can't interact, mm-hmm. flubbing, flubbing dice is on time honor tradition. Right. And that that that's not just the dice. It's the encounter. It's what happens in the encounter, how the NPCs react or whatever it is. Like pivoting and having different challenges is fine, uh, but as long as everybody at the end of the, at the end of the day is having a good time, that's that's only thing that matters. I've had encounters where I've designed them to be pushover encounters, where the the encounter happens, the party is supposed to walk through it, and then dice happen, and my little tiny goblin. Uh, like one V fives an entire party because dice just <laughs> run in its favor. And sometimes that can be a little bit fun, but also like I'm not a bug of having that goblin go, 
oh, I'm going to go run away now or end the encounter and move on to something else. And yeah, I mean, pulling punches, it, it I think that's the wrong way to look at it. You are ensuring that everybody is having a good time in the pastime. Um, same thing with like flubbing dice. If you roll 10 natural 20s in a row, which can happen, uh, you know, I mean, every time you roll a, D, a, a 20-sided die, you have a 5% chance of critting. Uh, do you maybe say that it's not for the sake of it do you, or, or, or to make it a little more balanced? Sure, absolutely, I've done that. It's how everything, at the end of the day, how you feel about it. You want to, you know, an easy way to tell if I'm probably doing that? Instead of telling you what I rolled, I ask you what your armor class is. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Because I know what your armor class yep. is after a couple rounds. Yeah, 100%. That's an old then, habit, man. Yeah. If if I ask you what your armor class is and I go, okay, that'll probably hit, but you never hear the, the number of the roll, it was almost certainly a crit. Yep. <laughs> because I don't like to crit the players. I feel like crit crits are something only the players should do because the the uh, the opponents have so many advantages already. Uh, Can I get- I'm controlling all of them so I know exactly what I'm going to make them do. Can they respond more? Oh, go ahead. Jeff. I was going to say, can I, can I give a really good example of a creature that is in the game with rules that I refuse to use that just got released? They just updated. They just updated Astral Dreadnought, one of the only natural things to exist in the Astral Sea. It's in Morden Kanan's uh, Monsters of the Multiverse. If it crits with any attack, it automatically severs a player's silver thread. What a silver thread is, it's the thread from your astral projected form that goes back to your uh, mortal body. If that thread gets cut at any point in time, you die. That's it. Make a new character. There are no death saves. There is no you get shunted out of the astral plane. You die. This thing gets three attacks a turn plus two layer actions, two legendary actions per turn that are attacks. If any of those five attacks crit, which is again is a 5% chance... The player character dies regardless of how many hit points they have. As long as they're there astral projection wise. As long as they're there astral projection wise, which is the most common way for them to oh, get yeah, to the astral plane, right? Like I would never use that because that's not fun or fair. Like there's nothing the players can do at that point. Literally nothing. That's not good. That is, that is a creature designed to kill parties. And a lot of those exist in D&D. So yeah, like flubbing dice or saying, yeah, this it wasn't a crit. I'm I'm on Matt's train. I don't think unless it makes cinematic sense, players should be the only one that are critting. I agree. Yeah, I, I honestly feel like having a, a a character controlled by me crit you and and kill you. Uh, I mean, I've done it. I've I've had NPCs or you know mobs get crits, but I'm always when I do it, I'm like, okay, where are we in this fight? What's the situation? Will this change things in any way? Like, where am I, where am I going with this? Mm-hmm. Like, because in the end, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to tell a story, but I'm trying to tell a story with you guys. It's your story. It's the story of your characters doing things and having lives and adventures. And while I am not a hundred percent opposed to killing PCs, uh, especially if the PCs feel like they're just wordlessly begging for it, 
but it should mean something. <laughs> um, it should be something, yeah. right? There should be or, something attached to it that makes it iconic. If, if the player just doesn't want to play this character anymore, I always encourage this. If you want your character to die so you can play something else, I will come up with a really awesome death for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and we, can, we will work on this thing, and you will have an incredible send-off. I, I told you guys about the time that I was denied my heroic death in a one-shot. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're a barbarian? Yeah. Like, I wanted to die heroically. <laughs> party wouldn't let me like sometimes that's okay but yeah but but my point is just you know i don't want to just kill you like i don't want your character's story to end until you want it to end if that's at all possible i don't because like you all guys all have backstories mm -hmm. yeah and to loop it back to to the original portion of it liz you handled it very well like that was that's that was one of those encounters where I, I actually looked it up in the book after we were done because I was like, I have mm-hmm. to see what this is. He is not <laughs> a CR2 encounter. I went through his stat block and I looked at what mm-hmm. the encounter was designed for. That's a CR4 encounter. I think they mistyped it. <laughs> yeah, because it does say two. Yeah, it is it not. Two. It is not well, a CR2 encounter based off of his stat block. His stat C- block alone. CR in, CR in fifth edition is very much like. It's weird. It's a, it's a suggestion. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's a very liberal suggestion. Yeah, but like I mean, he, he's getting class abilities that are third level or higher, like Uncanny Dodge. Mm-hmm. Classes right. don't get that until third level. He has evasion. Classes don't get that till third level. He is at least a third level character based off of his stats. And then he has the uh, minions on top of that which pushes it up another rating. Like I literally did the math in the reincarnated Cobalt fight club without mm-hmm. the names. Cause Cobalt fight club has like this, this encounter in there, but that follows the book. It is a CR four encounter on anything that calculates difficulty. You handled mm-hmm. that really well. Yeah. You could have when, when killed us without batting an we were losing. Yeah. When it became obvious we were losing and we were going to lose, you shifted gears without really shifting. I think Joe and I noticed because we're used to seeing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any. I don't think Anna or Andrew did. And if they did, they didn't say anything either because, like us, they realized, oh well, she's being. This is about the best you could handle this because they could mm-hmm. easily have just, you know, once we all went down, it's just one attack to kill you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, if you want to actually kill somebody, oh, they're on the ground in front of me, I stab them again. Done. Yeah. I I mean, it wouldn't immediately kill you, but you'd fail two death saves. Right, right. It's it's dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, I I don't think you really had anything to worry about there. Um, In terms of if you wanted to get it over faster, sometimes that makes players fight harder. Mm -hmm. Like, if they feel like they're getting steamrolled, they'll start really going for every crazy idea they ever had (laughs) and you never know when you're going to suddenly see the dice turn yeah so i don't feel like it's necessary to be like oh i gotta put them out of their misery (laughs) let's see where it goes and And you did that really well and we ended up getting to where we were going yeah yeah and that's a takeaway for everybody Um, at home we talked about this before like having that rule zero conversation uh or the session zero conversation having to decide decide what type of game you want there are groups that like I have had groups that have been people that were like, I want you to try to kill me as hard as you can. <laughs> like I've had parties literally ask me to do that for, for certain things because they want to test their ability to think around what I can do to them. Um, but we aren't that type of group. Liz is not that type of DM. And so like we're you, 
and I'm not saying this just to hype you up. You did a very good job, and I was very impressed with how you pivoted and how quickly and naturally you did it. It's something that newer DMs struggle with because a lot of folks, and again, this is advice for people at home, remember that things in books are guidelines. They are not yeah, exactly. The, I was the, just going to say that the, 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 so many DMs get stuck in the but the book yes. says thing. Yeah, absolutely. But at the at the end of the, the day, things, you have to make that decision. Sorry, please go ahead, Liz. Yeah, one of the things that I did or was preparing to do or prepared to do was you know I brought Agdon, kind of the main antagonist, in first, and then he had two boats of bandits that were you know out in the water coming that direction. Mm-hmm. They were the ones playing bagpipes. If you yep. Uh, <laughs> So, um, and I had one boat come up and people, but I waited around for that to happen. And then I made all of the bandits in the boat roll to see if they could get up out of there. And a lot of them did not. And I had that other boat out there that I was like, okay, if they steamroll this, I can bring in the other boat. But I just, yeah, yeah, did not happen. So I was kind of prepared to adjust the difficulty and it was based on what was in the book. You know, it's just like, okay, we're going to bring this one in first. We're going to see, we're going to delay the next one and kind of give players a chance to do stuff. Um, I think I gave y'all like an initial round before we rolled for initiative. Yeah, Did I do a, that or not? No, yeah. no, no. You gave us one action. Because one he action, was, yes. Because he was being, uh, he was doing the villain thing of gloating. And, yeah. And, yeah. He, yeah. He showed up and kind of did a dramatic reveal. Like, you know, because every we all felt that villain ever. Because again, we failed. We failed our perception checks, and our passes weren't high enough to catch him when he was right behind us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone in the party, every single player in the party, has a passive perception of fourteen. So yep. it's like, if there's something like, okay, the person with the highest perception sees this, it's like, okay, well. <laughs> so, um, go ahead, hmm. please. But I went into this, you know, prepared to adjust, but I was surprised by by how much it overwhelmed you and how fast. And unfortunately, that's sort of the nature of of any game that involves dice, right? Yeah, 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 true. And again, like the encounter, I, I think the encounter is mislabeled as far as this challenge rating goes. And I think that's going to hurt a lot of groups. And I'm actually curious out there, uh, if you are a listener and you've played through this and you did encounter... Uh, our little bunny bandit friend. Uh, what level did you encounter it at? And what was your experience with the encounter? I'm I'm very curious. Yeah. Level two is an interesting level where you feel like, you, oh, wow, I gained a level. I've got all this new stuff. <laughs> and then you actually get out there. Like, oh, no, I'm still pretty, pretty weak. Okay. See, as, as written, you should only be level two for this encounter. You would not get another level until the end of this chapter after you confront the hag. So, yeah, yeah this is written for level two characters. And there is a path to go down if you're beaten or you're not beaten, but I don't get a good feel as to which way it's going to go, except the encounter as written is very hard because you're supposed to be immediately confronted by Agdon and like okay, three, four, eight bandits. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm saying. skill levels. Like, and yeah. the bandits are all essentially level one-ish, like comparatively on paper, but like even then... It's it's an interesting thing. If you ever use the the calculator on uh, D&D Beyond, Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens is, say you put like a, you have a group of like CR, like your, your party's level seven, let's say, Mm -hmm. and you put one CR seven boss against them. Now the fight's considered to be okay. It's, it's good challenge. Put two level one mooks into that fight (laughs) and now it tips the balance. Yeah. 
Yeah, Number, numbers in the game matter. Being, yeah, just by it's, being there, they make you they 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 give him more effective actions. They it just it changes everything. It's really fascinating how quickly that that fight will go deadly. Well, it's a lot about action economy too, because mm-hmm. players can do multiple things in their turns, and a lot of little monsters can do one thing per turn. So if you have a party versus one monster, even if it's a really super high-level monster, the party can do so much every round that sometimes you can overwhelm a much more powerful opponent. But if you array like a half dozen little mooks out there, sometimes that can be overwhelming because they have so many I, actions around. I found So a, yeah, and this one was this uh, one was hard because you had one kind of main antagonist, but you also had potentially eight small things that could be like wailing away on everyone at the same time and that could be really tough i think one of the things that i am really hoping future encounter design actually considers and matt and i have talked about this before uh i I know we have and i'm pretty sure we have with you as well is is the idea of having either legendary or layer actions with much lower cr monsters to get people used to them but also give Hmm those encounters more options because a CR two encounter like this with all of those minions is super deadly. But if you had none of those minions, but they could take because you're talking about action economy um, for those of you at home, if you don't play D and D first of all, why are you listening to this? But welcome. (laughs) Um, But you get your regular action, a move action and a bonus action, as well as an object interaction on each of your player turns. Technically, NPCs can do those things as well, but until you start getting into higher encounters, that's all they can do. So if you have five people of equal level, one of them is the uh, villain or encounter, they get four potential actions a turn against 20 potential actions a turn. That is problematic. And as you get higher level, you get more and more options like using your bonus action to cast spells and such like that, which is why they introduce layer actions and legendary actions. But doing something like introducing layer actions earlier gives you more things to react to with players that you can balance out against without adding more minions. It really is the more numbers you have, the deadlier combat gets in Dungeons and Dragons. And this is a problem that they've called out specifically multiple times. If you go to any of their official streams, if you listen to their official podcast when they talk about their encounter designs, You'll notice that a lot of the books that are coming out, a lot of the boss fights now don't involve a lot of high number minions. And that's because they are cognizant of the fact that even if you were to throw, you know, let's say 10 level 10 NPCs at a four person party of level 20 characters, those level 20 characters are more than likely going to lose because they can only target and affect so many things at once. It It's an interesting problem with the game. And I put it in here as economy of scale, and that's really what it is. The larger the scale of the encounter, the more deadly it is. So if you can reduce the scale of the encounter, but increase the options available in an encounter, you have a better chance of balancing it out. And that's something I try to do a lot uh, with my homegrown stuff. I don't know if you do that as well, Matt. I don't know how to explain what I do. My my encounter design (laughs) is very much... it's like, what do I think would be cool uh, is really what it comes down to. If you look back at the uh, the Riotan game we did, I did fights where I knew you were all going to die. Mm-hmm. 
like if I didn't, you know, I, I designed this fight and put all stuff in, then I'm like, okay, now I have to put in some stuff for the players or this is going <laughs> to be over in like four rounds. Um, the one time that I really let it go was that the, 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 the weird one we did where I gave you guys characters to play. Yeah. And we went into the volcano. I knew you were going to die at the end of that. I didn't even bother. Like I didn't even, I don't think we even bothered to role play it. I just cut like after he killed one of you, I just cut. And then I later on had some of the people survive and show up and be like, Oh yeah, this dragon God monster thing will killed us. Uh, because yeah, I, 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 my encounters are really all about like what weird thing can I do and what weird thing will happen? Like when Joe befriends a giant ape or <laughs> like will, 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 uh, Mitch, Mitch, uh, befriend a giant dragon God. I, I didn't know that was coming. Um, like I, I really thought the the fight that we went into where Mitch piloted the giant dragon and it was basically like a video game vehicle section that was originally <laughs> going to be the bunch of you on top of the dragon, you know, attacking it while it attacked the the you know the forces of good, for lack of a better word, and then it morphed into that because Mitch made friends with it. Um, See, so yeah, I, I don't I don't approach encounter design in a very systematic way. It's very much more along the lines of, I think it would be really cool if there were like 16 like monsters here, but I don't want to kill the party. So there's an orb they can click on that will blow half the monsters up that kind of thing. You know, like the last fight you guys had essentially it was one thing, but it was like one thing that had like six different layer actions because it had these pillars up and you guys just did a really good job of keeping its attention focused away from your more vulnerable people and killing the things as they came. Uh, it was just a really good encounter for you. Uh, so yeah, that's, I'm, I'm not really the greatest person to talk on that one. I think <laughs> one thing that I think would be interesting for like in published books, you know, I kind of had some ideas on how to make this encounter harder if I needed to, or easier if I needed to, by holding back some of the mobs that were supposed to be in it. But the what if what if published books when there's an encounter said okay if the party is wailing through this bring in like the second group of bandits who just took longer to get here or if the party is having trouble never bring in that second group of bandits you know things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Because actually do, do do that. Um, I remember the uh, there's a module called the Lost City. Mm -hmm. It's a really old module. Uh, this goes back to, I think it's like 1980, 81. But I remember in it, like it's, it's a module that's set up around exploring an ancient city. And there are several encounters where they're like, if the party is being overwhelmed, either allow them to retreat through door X, whatever, or uh, present them with allies from, you know, the various groups mm -hmm. they've met along the way. Uh, and if the party is having too easy of a time of it, the you know instead of a ghoul in that chamber, you, it can be a white with a paralysis with a paralysis touch. So there are some modules that have done that. I, I think it is a good idea. I would like it if more modules did that um, because you know you never know. Also, I, I do think you random sequitur because you brought it up, but I love mm -hmm. the Lost City. Um, there is a company <laughs> out there called Goodman Games that is taking all of those old adventures and up converting them to fifth edition, like literally in production. Now they got all the rights to do it. So like you can get, they did that. Uh, the barrier peaks is out. Isle of dread is out. <laughs> like they're, they're doing that. And though that has existed in their, their publications for a long time. So it's, I'm glad to, like they keep doing it, but also don't be afraid if you're running these things at home to make further adjustments. It, that is always just, on the table. <laughs> I just imagine that 
new DMs, if it's not in the book, like you're you're tempted to just, this is what the book says, I must follow the book. Mm -hmm. But D&D, the more I play it, and certainly the more I DM it, it feels like D&D is all about the adjustments you make based on the situation and based on your party, because who knows what your party is going to do? Y'all always come up with weird and surprising things that the book never considered. Well, so, yeah, it's like, you know, when we were doing the Candlekeep game, mm -hmm. uh, there were, like, multiple times where, like, one of the characters would just do something and be like, what just happened? <laughs> um, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. There, there was... I still, I think back to that day, that, that adventure every time where we, we ran into that like weird Lamaya cult and just left after we'd solved the problem. Like, don't make any more of these books. The books are bad. Okay. We won't do that again. All right. Later. <laughs> <laughs> just left them to, to go back and try and resurrect their weird cult leader. And we're like, yeah, um, eh, whatever. Yeah. For everyone at home, for everyone at home, this was a game we just played for fun off stream from Candlekeep Mysteries. And yeah, like half of the adventure is tracking down this like evil book thing. And the other half is like figuring out what to do with this. Matt calls it a cult and I won't argue with that <laughs> because they never saw the last half of the story because they just said okay and walked away. So yeah, you never know what a party is going to do. Maybe if that was an ongoing campaign, I would have put that, you know, kind of made a right turn and put that in front of you again. And if we continue that, you know, I still might because, you know, in the world we've built, okay, that group is still out there somewhere in the world and they're still doing things. You just don't know. You walked away from it. And maybe in the future they would be hostile to you. Maybe they would be friendly to you, but you don't know. They're still out there somewhere. But you never know what a player's going to do. <laughs> never, yeah, that is the truth, right? Like, we talked about this, I think, in one of our first episodes. If it wasn't for the first one, it was definitely the second one. You can never plan for everything your players are going to do. It, even if you think you know what they're going to do, wrong. They're not going to go to that magical city. Or they're going to take <laughs> that 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 cask of wine that is very clearly not wine, especially with all the hints you're giving and pour it in a sarcophagus where it has ritual holes in the face for whatever reason, they're going to do this thing, despite the fact that they know they shouldn't uh, it's, it's always going to be the case. Like it's, yeah, I mean, it's it like I, you can put a group of kobolds in the basement, <laughs> but you can't make the players, you know, murder them. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, the other, that's the other rule. If you put a small NPC that is originally a combatant for the party, they will adopt it invariably. That one's written in stone. That's a cosmic law. Yeah, but that's one. You guys adopted like 40. It's your fault. You made them cute. <laughs> you have 40 kobolds living. You in, made them in, cute. In, there's 40 so, of them down there. Yeah, if anyone wonders what we're talking about now, it's the Weirs game that Matt and Joe are running, which, uh, yeah, took has taken some interesting right turns as well, in part because Matt decided to give us a deck of mini things, just because. Yeah, I, I've always wanted to, and I haven't in a long time, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. I mean, uh, like I said, actually... I, I tend to run games in a somewhat chaotic fashion. I tend to be the chaos gremlin DM. That just Joe is much more of a like lawful neutral DM. I think I am 100% lawful neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I am very much chaotic neutral, sometimes chaotic, good, mostly chaotic neutral. <laughs> All right. But is there anything else you guys want to talk about or bring up before we call it a day here? 
I think uh, I'm going to say we need to call it a day because I do still need to be packing up my house. I'm moving, guys, <laughs> while we're you know, filming this, recording this. <laughs> all right. Well, then, folks, uh, I do want to thank you for joining us here. Blizzard Watch and all of our podcast productions are made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance to have your question answered on our podcast or the queue in an ads free site experience. Uh, for those of you that have listened to the end here, we do have some things that we are working on in the background to expand uh, potentially things we do with the tabletop top and figuring out what we're doing for games that are going to be upcoming. Uh, we know that there is going to be at least another Witchlight game coming up very, very soon. So if you're interested in that, uh, you know, there you go. Uh, we are currently working on the Weirs uh, as far as that goes. I am supposed to be taking over as a DM. Uh, Matt and I are coordinating since Matt is moving. It makes it a little more difficult, but we will get there. And if we can't do weirs, we are talking about other things that we can do in instead. So if you have something that you maybe like us to do or a genre, if we don't do the weirs, let us know. I'd love to know. And you can let us know at any of our various channels, such as podcast at blizzardwatch.com. You can go ahead and throw us there. Or if you are a Patreon supporter, you can throw it in discord and we'll be there looking for it. Uh, but that Even folks, if you aren't even if yeah. you aren't a Patreon supporter, throw it in Discord. We yeah. have a D&D chat channel in Discord. Hit us up. Absolutely. Uh, but with that, folks, we'll see you next time. <laughs>